0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. December 7th, 1987. Pacific Southwest Airlines 1771, a British Aerospace 146 regional airliner with 43 people on board, is servicing a commuter flight from Los Angeles International Airport to San Francisco International Airport. Pacific Southwest Airlines flight 1771 departs LAX at 3.31 p.m. and was scheduled to arrive at San Francisco at 4.43 p.m they would not make it to their destination. The first 28 minutes of the cockpit voice recorder indicate a routine flight. Just after the captain requested a change in altitude due to turbulence, the cockpit voice recorder recorded the sound of three to four gunshots, and a crew member could be heard stating, my God, that's a gun. The flight was hijacked by an armed passenger and forced to impact a hillside at around 770 miles an hour, slightly faster than the speed of sound. The impact was on the Santa Rita Cattle Ranch in the Santa Lucia Mountains between Paso Robles and Cayucos. What happened in the cabin and how did the hijacker gain access to the cockpit with a loaded weapon? How was he able to bypass security and commit the second worst mass murder in California at the time? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi. We're back with another episode. Yeah, and this one sounds wild. Yeah, a little wild. Chris has been talking a lot yesterday, so if he sounds a little strange, <laughs> uh, that's that's what's going on. His voice his voice is a little tired right now, a little a little scratchy. Before, of course, we get into it. Want to remind everyone: to give us follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We post typically images and things that are difficult to imagine in your mind. Kind of supplemental helps you see what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I said this in a, in a recent episode, but typically I don't like doing episodes about. Terrorism or hijacking, because I feel like it falls outside of the safety culture of an airline, right? Like that's more of a security lapse as opposed to something wrong with the plane or something wrong in, in you know, yeah. lacking in maintenance or in the airplane, or I'm sorry, with the airline. But of course, we did the one with uh, Philippine 434 just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because I thought that was an interesting story, the wider story going on there and how they were able to save that plane, you know? Yeah. This one. Is also very interesting outside of the scope of just the hijacking, which is why I wanted to talk about this particular incident. Okay. And we've talked about Pacific Southwest Airlines before. This was a regional airline. It was headquartered out in San Diego. It operated from 1949 to 1998. We mentioned them in a recent episode where there was a mid air collision over San Diego, where one of their planes caught up to a Cessna that was practicing instrument approaches and then they collided over san diego Mm -hmm. and they had what they called uh, the grinning birds they had smiles on their airplanes oh i don't remember that yeah yeah. Yeah. we posted (laughs) speaking of our social media i posted a a photo of the smiling airplane on uh, social media when that episode came out a little pretty happy uh, airplane They're pretty happy airplanes, yeah. And this airline was very mm, influential, very, it was a big inspiration for Southwest Airlines. So even though Pacific Southwest Airlines doesn't exist anymore, Southwest Airlines kind of took a lot of their ideas and is still operating with them. Mm. Like very, you know, as far as like the no frills, customer service, you know, kind of fun aspect. Yeah. However, that being said, this incident we're talking about, like I said, was December of 1987. Pacific Southwest Airlines had just recently been purchased by US Air in 1986. Okay. U.S. Air was trying to expand their network and by acquiring Pacific Southwest Airlines, it really gave them a big foothold on the West Coast. You know, you don't hear about it so often anymore because there's not a ton of airlines like there used to be. But back in the day when airlines would acquire each other, one of the big reasons was their routes, you know, and where they were flying. And it's less headache to acquire an airline and get their routes than it is to try to make new routes into uh, busy airports. Yeah,
1: because there's like limited like space in the airports,
0: right? Right. Right, limited slots where people can land and take off. So sometimes, you know, an airline will buy another one just to get their, their <laughs> slots in and out of an airport. Like, that's that's really valuable. I think we mentioned that in another episode way back when when Southwest Airlines acquired AirTran, mainly for their their routes into Atlanta. Anyway, <laughs> we're already off the rails. <laughs> we're already really sidetracked. We're talking about Pacific Southwest Airlines Flight 1771. The flight was captained by Greg Lindemood, who was 43 years old, and First Officer James Nunn, who was 48. And they departed Los Angeles at 3.36 p.m. And they were cruising at 22,000 feet over the central California coast. The cockpit voice recorder recorded one of them asking air traffic control about reports of turbulence. And at 4.13 p.m., one of the pilots could be heard contacting the FAA in Oakland with a message. We've got a problem. We've got a gun fired. They're bored on board the aircraft.
1: Oh, so they heard it before they got into the cockpit.
0: Right, they heard the gun discharge in the passenger cabin and they know, you know, something's wrong. After the first few shots, a crew member can be heard on a cockpit voice recorder stating, my God, that's a gun. As a second crew member was heard stating, yes, I know it is, tell them we have a problem. And then radio traffic indicates that the flight broadcasted distress code and afterward, a flight attendant believed to be Debbie Neal can be heard calling out, Captain. uh, As another voice believed to be a man can be heard saying, I've got a problem while entering the cabin. And- Oh- uh, I, I want to make a, a big asterisk here. Okay, the impact was so severe, and the black box technology was still a little primitive back then in 1987 that the cockpit voice recorder was pretty damaged. So this part of the recording is a little garbled. And the report says it's it's unclear exactly what was said. It was something like maybe I've got a problem or I'm the problem. The problem is really the only word that they were able to tell, but it was a short sentence like, involving I and problem. Mm. I mean, both sound accurate. Yeah, <laughs> neither is good. <laughs> and there was one other thing I wanted to mention right here. You know, we said that the flight broadcasted distress code and in one mm-hmm. of our supplemental episodes, you know, when we talked about aviation and movies, we talked. I talked about that movie 7500, which mm-hmm. is about, you know, a hijacking on a plane. And that movie was called 7500 because that's the code you broadcast in a plane if there's a hijacking going on. That way, air traffic control knows. They know exactly. Right. What's going on. That way, if you can't say anything, you can type that code in and it alerts air traffic control that there is a hijacking situation. It's a secret code. Yeah. Well, maybe not so secret. (laughs) We're talking about it. There's a a movie with the title, but it's a way to discreetly (laughs) indicate, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Secret, like, you know.
0: Yeah. You don't have to say it aloud. Right. There's a couple other codes that are pretty standard. 7,600 is if your radios stop working or you lose communication. You can broadcast that and air traffic control knows, oh, they might not be able to hear us or they might not Mm. be able to talk to us. Just something's wrong with their radio. And then 7,700 is if you're declaring an emergency. Mm-hmm. So, just a, a couple of the codes that that are possible, and then typically, you know you just put in whatever identifier code air traffic control tells you It's just so they can keep track of you, and that's all via the transponder okay so after the cockpit voice recorder you know hears this guy burst in and say something about having a problem or being a problem, then the sound of scuffling and moaning followed by the noise of the instruments being moved and an increase in speed oh. and the recording Kind of ends seven seconds later.
1: So, like, they went down and hit that quickly.
0: I'm not. It, it's it's unclear as to whether or not the rest of it was unrecoverable or if that's when impact uh-huh. happened. I'm going to say the impact probably did not happen that quickly because they were at you know 22,000 feet. You're looking at about four and a half miles. They were going very fast, but to cover that in seven seconds would be mm. extreme. Way well, like way too fast. That I don't think that would have been physically possible. So I'm going to assume okay. that there beyond there the recording just ceased to work or was unrecoverable. Uh, So speaking of speed, the instruments revealed that the plane was traveling in excess of Mach 1, which means it broke the sound barrier. It was going faster than the speed of sound. It was going pretty much straight down when it crashed. The force of the impact created a 30-foot-deep crater, with most of the oh debris located in there. Yeah, This, like if you think about all of that weight and all of that force with that speed hitting, like it created a 30-foot crater. And the investigators say that it was weird because it impacted with so much force that the ground, you know, gave way to make this crater. And then al- it was uh-huh. almost, like, almost like a mini trampoline. The ground gave way and then kind of like flexed back up back a little bit and just caused like a bunch of papers and everything on the plane to just shoot up and kind of like spread all around the area.
1: Oh man. So because they were going straight down, not angled down like a lot of you know accidents that we talk about because this was it sounds like intentional. Mhm. That 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 would create more of a crater versus like skidding along the ground, right? Right.
0: Right. That's, that's like going straight down versus, you know, normally a pilot is presumably trying to still fly the plane or yeah. save the plane. So you're not going straight down. Of course we've talked about exceptions to that. But for the most part, typically it's not that type of impact. Yeah. And in fact, based on the deformation of the black box recorder case, uh, it's estimated the aircraft experienced a deceleration of 5,000 G when it hit the ground. If you want to imagine, like, it's whatever your weight is, multiply it by 5,000. That's the force you would have felt.
1: That that they hit when they they stopped, essentially.
0: Right, right, when they hit the ground. And, like, I I mean, it was, everything was just disintegrated. There was really not much to look at. It's... You know, if they got to the point where even the black boxes were deformed and they had trouble reading them, and it was really a difficult case for them to go through. Because, so like we said, even the black yeah. box data was kind of difficult to look through. I'm sure you're like me. You've got a bunch of monthly subscriptions that you pay for, but do you really keep track of all of them? I was surprised to find out I had subscriptions I had forgotten about. Thanks to Rocket Money, I was able to find them and eliminate them because, hey, guess what? I wasn't even using them. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about. Chances are you're one of them, like the Stars app just to watch one show or that free gaming trial you never actually used. Rocket Money will quickly and easily find subscriptions for you. For any you don't want to pay anymore, you just hit cancel and Rocket Money will cancel it for you. It's that easy. Rocket Money also helps you manage all your finances in one place and automatically categorize your expenses. You can easily track your budget in real time. Also get alerted if anything looks off. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. So stop throwing your money away, cancel unwanted subscriptions, manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com blackboxdown. That's rocketmoney.com blackboxdown. Do you remember what it was? It was rocketmoney.com blackboxdown. Barring any unseasonal winter storms, I think it's safe to say spring's here. The days are longer, the weather's warmer. I'm ready to spend time outside, and there's no truly better way to enjoy the spring season than with an electric e-bike. You can discover your local area or experience the freedom of the great outdoors with fun, fast, and foldable electric e-bikes during their ready-set spring sale. I love my electric e-bike. I really try to find any excuse I can to use it, whether it's exploring the neighborhood I live in or going to restaurants nearby or going to restaurants that are even further away. It's awesome because I'm lazy. I don't like to pedal. So it's got the electric motor. I just let it do most of the work. Shh, don't tell anyone. It's super great. Just go outside and really enjoy the journey and the trip going there. Plus here in Austin, parking is awful. And with a bike, you just pull right up to the front, lock it on the bike rack. You're done. Their feature-filled models are financed as low as $73 per month. So your adventures won't cost a fortune. electric e bikes include a powerful removable battery, a bright LCD display, seven-speed gearing, and five levels of pedal assist to power your ride. Plus, you can lower your gas costs and reduce your carbon footprint. They're also foldable and arrive fully assembled and shipping is free. So start your next adventure with Electric E-Bikes Ready Set Spring Sale. Visit electricebikes.com to learn more and explore the new Expedition Cargo E-Bike and all the other epic models Electric has to offer. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-Bikes.com. So the crash site was located by a CBS News helicopter and then investigators from the National Transportation Safety Board were joined by the, the FBI. They had to work together because, you know, they know there's a crime. They, they heard the pilot say there was a gun. And it's like the NTSB knows how to investigate plane crashes to figure out what happened. And the FBI knows how to investigate crime. So it's like they need each other's expertise to like work together to, to figure this one out. Yeah. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. So after two days of digging through what was left of the plane, they found the parts of a handgun containing six spent cartridge cases and a note on an air sickness bag. That was written by David Augustus Burke, indicating that he may have been responsible for the crash. An air
1: sickness bag? Like, as in he vomited? He didn't actually use it.
0: Yeah, so he took it out
1: of the front thing and wrote a note? Exactly. Like, like okay, just use it as a piece of paper.
0: I right. assume a, 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 hey, I have a gun kind of note. We'll get to that, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's a good question. It's like, well, you know, if he takes the time to write a note, what... What's he writing? What is that? And the reason I mentioned earlier, I brought up about how the impact kind of the ground kind of gave way and then everything kind of bounced back up and spread up into the air was that's kind of what saved this note. It didn't burn up in a fire or anything because all of the papers kind of shot out and spread out in the area. You know, if it had been a more traditional crash, like you were talking about, where it kind of skids along into the ground and there had been a post impact fire, you know, presumably this note would have been burned up. But because it hit straight down and everything, kind of all the papers kind of bounced up and flew all around, they were able to find this note, which was huge for this case. Yeah, that's that's this is
1: one of those wild things. Like there was that one incident where they were like weeks after the—I feel like it was weeks, days after the crash—the person like sees a document on the
0: ground. Oh yeah, yeah. Around. You remember, that? right? <laughs> yeah, like that kind of thing. Right. It's just there's these absolutely. Pivotal moments where it's just like someone finds a piece of paper. So the big question now at this point is who is this person? Who is this David Augustus Burke? You know, why did he write this note and presumably commit this crime? Well, it turns out Burke was a recently fired LA based employee of us air. Remember I said us air had just acquired Pacific Southwest airlines. Oh, he was suspended November 15th, 1987 by his supervisor, Ray Thompson, after he was caught stealing cash from the airline from in-flight cocktail receipts. Oh, my God. Yeah, he was caught stealing $69. That led to his termination, and that's kind of where we're here. That's kind of where we're at. To let...
1: Oh, my... I hate when people do these stupid things. Like...
0: Yeah, I mean, just awful, right? Well, yeah, we'll, we'll, like, we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a bit. As We, we get... You know, there's a, there's a little more we ahead. need to get through here. But, yeah, well, we definitely inexcusable and you know we'll, we'll we'll get into that a little more so david augustus burke was formerly based in rochester new york but he had moved to los angeles to avoid suspicions of smuggling cocaine from jamaica through the airline what is this guy doing so he was never actually officially charged for that and i feel like that's that's important to say but these were persistent rumors and there there is like a little bit of shadiness uh-huh. going on there but he was never actually charged for that based upon what we do know i'm gonna I'm going to make an assumption. It, it, it seems kind of <laughs> like, but you know how these reports are, right? It's very fact-based. Mm-hmm. It's only what you can prove, you know, nothing yeah. beyond that. So Burke did not appear for his grievance hearing on December 3rd, 1987. This is related to his theft of the $69. Okay. And early on the next morning, which would have been December 4th, he was charged with accosting someone with a large gun while wearing a mask. The victim refused to identify him as her assailant. And he was later observed meeting with Thompson, who remember his, was his supervisor who fired him. And Thompson was uh-huh. the station manager of U.S. Air at LAX.
1: So wait, he accosted someone with a large gun and a mask
0: where this was unrelated. This is off airport. It's just like that. I think they just include all of this as like background showing that he may have had other things going on. And OK, have had and access to a was, gun.
1: He was charged as in like outside of this incident. He, right. he, he was attacking someone.
0: And then right. OK. And then later, after that, he was observed meeting with Thompson, who was the station manager of U.S. Air at LAX, and this was his boss. In his exit interview, he admitted to a $300 a week cocaine habit. Oh. Again, place back to the, uh, the cocaine smuggling theory. Yeah, and $300 a week, what is that in today's money? So $300 in 1987 is the equivalent to just under $800 today.
1: $800 a week?
0: That's a, that's probably that's a, a lot that, of cocaine. That's a lot of cocaine. <laughs> I figure when, you do, when you're doing your budgeting in like Quicken, like that pie chart looks yeah. kind of weird. <laughs> your CPA is telling you, here's, here's where you could save some money. <laughs> yeah, it's like, huh. You have a, a big part of your pie chart is that white pie. <laughs> <laughs> if you reduce your cocaine expenditures, we can get back in the black. <laughs> oh, man. So he claimed this cocaine habit was due to not being treated fairly at US Air. What? I I don't know. He also admitted to a significant alcohol problem and the need for counseling. And some former acquaintances, like girlfriends, neighbors, described him as a violent man even before these events of Flight 1771. So all all yeah. of that I think was is just in their building kind of background on uh, mm-hmm. on the on his character. Anyway, this is all leading up to this, this event. And Burke was later seen purchasing a ticket for this flight for Flight 1771 at a PSA counter, and documents recovered by the FBI showed he was allowed at 1.30 p.m. to bypass the security point because he was a known U.S. Air employee.
1: Oh, my.
0: They they didn't know that he'd been fired? or Right. He still had his credentials. Oh, my goodness. So if you're ever in security nowadays and you see, you know, the pilots and the flight attendants, you know, cut in front of you to the head of the security line and they still have to go through Uh the metal detector, this is why. That,
1: yeah, no exceptions.
0: Right. Flight crew still has to go through the screening, even though they work there and they may Mm -hmm. be in a hurry. They're allowed to get to the front of the line, obviously, to get to work on the plane. They still have to go through the metal detector, get their stuff scanned and, you know, make sure that this doesn't happen again. So that's why I think this is a really interesting one. Yeah. So Burke left messages on his girlfriend's answering machine saying, I wish I could see you, but I'm not going to see you again. I'm sorry I messed things up. I love you. And he said that he would not return from San Francisco the night of the event. Mm. So he boarded the plane and he, like we said, he used his U.S. air credentials that had not yet been surrendered. And he was armed with a Smith & Wesson Model 29 44 caliber revolver. I, I know that sounds, I, if you don't know guns and it's not like, I mean, I know that's like a mouthful, right? Smith & Wesson Model 29 44 caliber revolver. This is a big gun. Have you ever seen Clint Eastwood, the, the Dirty Harry? Uh huh. It's a Clint yeah. Eastwood movie from the '70s with the really, really long. Uh, right. Uh, what do you call it? Neck. Oh, barrel. Barrel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's this gun. Okay. This is this is so this, this is, is like is, a a huge gun.
1: Like it's almost like the cartoon comically large gun. Like right.
0: What a. I guess if you didn't go through security. Right. Then it's easier to hide. Uh, yeah. So depending on the specific model he had, the gun itself is either 9.3 inches long or 12 inches long. So it could be really, really long. Yeah. And these typically weigh, you know, depending on the gun, they typically weigh, let's say about um, a little over a kilogram, which is like just over 2.2 pounds. So it's heavy. This is a big gun. Yeah. So Ray Thompson, remember this is the supervisor who who fired him. Uh-huh. Ray Thompson was known to regularly commute from LAX to San Francisco and was also a passenger on this flight. Oh, oh he's going yeah. after that guy. Did yes. he shoot him in the past? So let me, let me read this next sentence, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> okay. So after boarding the plane, Burke wrote a message on the air sickness bag, which was recovered from the crash site, and that's the one we talked about a little while ago. Mm-hmm. But there's no way to know whether or not he gave the message to Thompson to read before shooting him. There's, like, there's just no way to know that. Mm-hmm. The note read, Hi, Ray. I think it's sort of ironical that we end up like this. I asked for some leniency for my family, remember? Well, I got none and you'll get none. Oh, man. So you asked, you know, if he how he shot him or what happened. And the exact sequence of events is, it's hard to piece together. There's no way to really tell. And also, you know, what you can piece together from the cockpit voice recorder, that was also damaged. So it's not quite clear as well. In due to the damage to it, it wasn't even possible to decipher everything said in the cockpit, or sometimes it wasn't clear who was saying what. That's why I was kind of vague, and I said the pilot said this, or the pilot said that, and I didn't say who said it. It was just such poor quality. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read what is the likely scenario, as it was pieced together and put together in the report, as most likely what happened. This plane... Oh, I didn't even really describe the plane, British Aerospace BAE 146. This is kind of a weird plane. I don't I don't know that we have ever covered an incident or an accident with one of these planes. It's it's not really a very common plane. It's similar to the plane that the Brazilian soccer team crashed. I remember when they ran out of fuel. That's mm, similar yeah. to that. I, th- I think that plane was like a newer, improved version of this plane, this British Aerospace 146. So it's like a regional jet. It's got four engines. It's a very successful plane. Very quiet and popular among some airlines. I just don't think it was very widely used in the United States. Okay. In looking it up, a total of 394 of them were built over its lifetime. Okay, I, I guess that's pretty
1: good for regional Yeah, yeah. Jet. decent
0: amount. Not like, you know, super popular. It's not everywhere. But I mean, maybe that's why we don't see it very often. But, you know, the people who operate it, you know, I think we're big fans of it. Anyway, <laughs> I just forgot to talk about the plane. <laughs> so this flight, you know, was at 22,000 feet over Central California coast. And, and like we said, the Cockroverse Recorder recorded one of the pilots asking air traffic control about reports of turbulence. And during the controller's reply, the cockpit voice recorder picked up two high-level gunshot-like sounds. Burke, at this point, had likely shot Thompson. One of the pilots reported twice to the center controller there had been gunshots fired aboard the aircraft. And uh, another reason that they're able to piece this together, that Burke most likely shot Thompson before proceeding, Mm. is they were able to find the bullet holes in the seat back where... Oh where Thompson was sitting. Actually, I take it back. They didn't find the seat back where Thompson was sitting. They found the seat behind Thompson in the wreckage or they found part of the seat behind and that one had a bullet hole in it. So they figure he shot him and since this gun was ridiculously big, you know, the bullet went through him and through the empty seat behind him as well. So that's why they they can speculate that he most likely shot Thompson first before proceeding with anything else. Mm -hmm. The controller asked the pilots, you know, whether they wish to divert to Monterey and the sound of the cockpit door opening could be heard followed by the sound of a female voice believed to be flight attendant Debbie Neal. And what was said by her couldn't be discerned aside from the word captain. And this was followed one second later by a male voice saying something that was mostly unintelligible in the recording, but ended with the word problem. The FBI's transcript notes that this may have been Burke's voice and it's popularly believed the complete phrase spoken by Burke had been, I'm the problem. This actually is not in the official FBI report. Immediately following this exchange, two more gunshots were registered followed by another gunshot six seconds later. So most likely, at this point, Burke shot each of the pilots, incapacitating them, if not outright killing them. Then 15 seconds later, the cockpit voice recorder picked up the sound of the cockpit door, either opening or closing, as well as increasing windscreen noise as the airplane pitched down and accelerated. 32 seconds after the sounds made by the cockpit door, a sixth and final gunshot was heard. All that could be determined was that this- Oh, I bet it was him. Mm. Suicide. Well- All that could be determined was that this shot occurred in the passenger cabin. And some people speculated, like you just said right there, that maybe Burke shot himself. However, the most probable victim of that sixth and final bullet was an off-duty pilot working for PSA, (gasps) Douglas Arthur, who was most likely trying to enter the cockpit in an attempt to get the plane out of the dive. For the remainder of the recording, the sound of the windscreen noise and distant voices could be heard. And the reason that they speculate he shot, The off-duty pilot, instead of shooting himself, Mm -hmm. is that when they recovered parts of the gun amongst the wreckage, Uh they recovered part of Burke's finger still in the trigger guard. And they said, oh my goodness, if he had shot himself, he would have not been holding onto the gun anymore. Wow. So most likely he was still holding onto the gun when the impact occurred, which means he was most likely still alive.
1: Holy moly. That is a Oh, I, I just, those are those types of clues that you don't think about and you don't necessarily want to think about.
0: Right. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty gory and horrific, but it just speaks to yeah. like the amount of detail and like every little thing that needs to be looked at. Even in a situation like this where almost all your evidence is disintegrated and destroyed, there's still little, you know, clues that can be, that can be gleaned to tell you or to give you a picture of how everything went down. Yeah.
1: I'm just thinking too. When they found the weapon, they were like, oh, quick, like, like, don't <laughs> look, Look, let's take a picture or something, you know, like they, they had to, like, document mm-hmm. how they found it.
0: Right. Uh, in fact, actually, if I remember correctly, this detail didn't make it into the final script here. But if I remember correctly, the force of the crash was so great that even the gun broke apart. Like, it was it was not whole. You know, they, they found part of the trigger mechanism in the barrel. I'm sorry, the part of the trigger mechanism and the cylinder. And that's where, you know, they found this evidence and they were able to piece this together. So, like I just said, the revolver was recovered from the crash site uh, along with six spent rounds. And it was sent to the FBI lab for analysis. And that's where they were able to lift a print from that finger fragment that was still stuck in the revolver's trigger guard. And that's how they were identify Burke as the person who was holding the weapon when the plane crashed. Mm. And of course, like I said, that indicated he was alive and holding the gun until the moment of impact. And it was also found out that Burke had recently borrowed a Chrome 44 Magnum with an eight-inch barrel revolver from another US Air employee working in San Francisco. You know, that, and again, like I said, that eight-inch barrel, this is a big gun. (laughs) This is like Mm -hmm. the Dirty Harry style gun. I think the longest barrel that they made for this specific kind of gun is like, about 10 and a half inches. If this is the eight inch barrel version, this is the second longest barrel available for it. For international (laughs) listeners, the 10 and a half inches is about 270 millimeters. The eight inch is about 210 millimeters.
1: Who lets people borrow
0: guns? Like who's like, hey, can I borrow your gun? And like, why? you, You know, I don't know. I, I was about to say if you asked to borrow a gun from me, I'd give it to you. But now that I say, I'm saying that lot, I don't know if I would, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd be like, what do you, need? Like, what do you I, need this for, Chris?
1: Yeah, I mean, and it'd be I get, I don't know what I would say. I guess I guess you have some excuse. Like I'm worried about someone attacking me. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess if he was selling cocaine to or smuggling
0: cocaine, and I don't know, but you think he would have his own gun at that at that point? Yeah. I don't. Know. I don't. I don't know. It's a it's a weird thing. Maybe he just got like, you know, like a really good friend. who's like, you want to buy a gun? Yeah, sure. No problem. Here you go. You know No questions asked. <laughs> so Burke's car which was the 87 Ford Taurus was found at LAX and impounded. And search warrants executed by the FBI found that Burke was attempting to obtain hundreds of thousands of dollars in flight insurance. He didn't actually manage to get any, but he was. And this reminds me of one of our early episodes at FedEx 705, where mm. an employee tries to yeah. stage a crash to try to cover up you know, him committing suicide. Yeah. And again, this is a an employee, well, I guess in this case, this was a, a recent employee that had been fired who, uh, you know, gets into the cockpit and in this case, successfully crashes the plane. You know, I guess as a follow-up to that FedEx 705 story, I, that specific plane from that episode continued flying for many years. It only just got retired at the start of 2023. I think its final flight yeah. was, uh, was late December 2022. And they finally... Um, Retired it. I think they retired all of those kinds of planes from FedEx. I think someone tweeted about it to us in December. Yeah. Again, that's social media, at (laughs) Pod, So there were many changes made to federal laws and even corporate policies as a result of this Mm -hmm. crime. Among the deceased passengers were three public affairs executives of Chevron who were traveling with the president of Chevron, James Silla. Also killed in the crash were three officials of Pacific Bell. Pacific Bell was the baby bell that was broken up from AT&T that operated in California and covered it back then. They no longer exist. They're just AT&T again. But many large corporations created new policies forbidding multiple executives from traveling on the same flight because of this.
1: Mm. Oh, where it's like you have too many important people on one flight.
0: Right. And you don't want that happening in case something goes wrong. And remember, this was 1987. This is two years after 1985, which we talked about was the second worst (laughs) month Mm, for civil aviation in in history. Yeah. Crashes were still, you know, not uncommon. They They weren't common, but they were super rare at this point. So maybe that's this part of the thinking of, hey, maybe we shouldn't put all of our executives on one plane anymore just to be safe. And there were new federal laws, which required immediate seizure of all airline and airport employee credentials after an employee's termination, resignation, Mm -hmm. or retirement from an airline or airport position, which now, in retrospect, seems like common sense. Yeah. Turn in your badge and you're well. (laughs) Well, not, yeah, yeah, <laughs> there was also a new policy implemented stipulating that all airline flight crew and airport employees were to be subject to the same security measures as airline passengers, which is what I mentioned earlier, which yeah. is a big takeaway from this. Is, you know They've got to go through the same security screenings as everyone else to make sure something like this doesn't happen. There is a memorial for this flight. In the Garden of Hope section of the Los Osos Valley uh, Memorial Park, there's a granite and bronze marker honoring the victims of Flight 1771. And a number of the passengers and crew are buried in that cemetery uh, out there. But that's it for Pacific Southwest 1771. This one I knew was going to be very straightforward and it wasn't going to be as long as some of our other episodes, but I thought it was still yeah, influential enough. And, and like it, it it warranted being talked about.
1: It's, it's really interesting. It also man, it, I just can't get over how big of a jerk that guy was like. Okay, he's mad at his boss, right? Or maybe even his boss and the airline, but like he's just gonna kill all
0: those other people, you know? And that's on top of the fact that he did steal sixty nine dollars. They had it on video. They had video of evidence yeah, stealing that and money. And also, he, yeah, was accused yeah, of smuggling addiction. cocaine.
1: Yeah, like he 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 admitted to having a cocaine and alcohol problem, and he's a pilot who's also stealing money. It's like. I, if
0: Those aren't grounds to be no, fired. Guy, I, I just want to clarify. He wasn't a pilot. He was just an airline employee.
1: Oh, an, oh okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just, I, I, I guess I never said that. He wasn't actually a, a pilot necessarily, but he did work for the airline. Okay. But
1: yeah, I mean, just to, to murder a bunch of innocent people. I mean, they're all innocent, but mm-hmm. people who have nothing to do with you or your, or your I don't know, issues. Mm-hmm. It's just I don't know it's really selfish and and I, a testament to what kind of person he was
0: right and and again, like I can't emphasize it enough. They had video of him stealing money, and you know he wasn't <laughs> suspected of smuggling cocaine like there, there's there's no way to to defend that right yeah and and then you know when he's taken out all of this anger on you know his boss like all these other people who just happen to be on this plane all have to die because of it as well yeah yeah terrible terrible tragedy all around but yeah that's it for uh psa 1771 like i said earlier give us a follow on social media at black box down pod facebook instagram twitter I'll, I'll post a picture of dirty harry holding the gun i guess if <laughs> if you're, if you're, no, that's, that's an old movie now at this point people may not remember it anymore but uh give us a follow and you'll see it and you'll make my day yeah
1: Thank you for everyone who shares the show with your friends and family and coworkers. Like,
0: that's awesome. We appreciate it. Yeah. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.